from the back and a good list right here on the front of this side of the uh, platinum model dry erase board that rotates. And so we generated these great big lists, and now we have list upon list, and we've got to plow through it and try to keep it straight and organize and connect it. But keep in mind that Zechariah 11 is the reason it generates, causes all these lists to come. So we're going to begin today's investigation with a special review of the special sermons. And uh, last week, Nick was here. He's uh, up on the slope now, I assume. Watching football? No? You know, okay, Nick's mom was here, too. And um, I talked to Nick's mom after the sermon, asked her how she liked it. And she was polite and kind to me and said that she liked it. It was very different from anything she'd ever heard ever, ever, ever. I said, good. That's what I'm trying to do. And Nick told her, he said, Mom, we like to call it the gifted program here. And I thought that was pretty funny. So that's where I'm headed. Welcome to the to the Sunday night gifted program. Anyway, investigation is exactly what I'm trying to get you to do. I'm trying to get you to approach the Bible almost the same way you would approach a crime scene if you were an investigator. You would go and you would try to pick up every little scrap and piece you can. It fascinates me that the popular uh, television shows are now all crime scene investigation. And everybody is thrilled by that, and that's really good, I guess, for those folks. But that is how you should approach your Bible. You should go in there thinking, okay, I have all these clues to something that happened. And try to find as many of them as you can and put them all together in the right sequence and have them tell you the totality of what it is you're studying. If you approach it that way, you will succeed as long as you start with the first rule. And the first rule is always what? Christ is God. If you don't do that, you'll get lost. You'll get lost in John 13. You'll get lost in Zechariah 11. You'll get lost all through the Bible. You certainly will never figure out the mystery of the man of sin. So when you study these mysteries, sift slowly through the evidence Reconstruct what you saw. Try to imagine it. Try to put all the people in place and what they all said and what they all did and why they were in the place they were in. Especially when you read the book of John or the Gospel of John. Ask every question you can ask. Tell yourself that's exactly what you are. You are investigating. You have your little investigator's... What is it? Magnifying glass and blue powder and... Recording device and camera, whatever you can do to reconstruct what it is that happened. And like I said, ask questions. I used to love uh, the old Columbo show. Because Columbo, Peter Falk, would walk around and just torment whoever the criminal was with what? Questions. And just as he's about to walk away, he'd turn around and say, i got four or five more questions to ask. That is, by the way, how you should be. You should be just like that. Ask questions, because that will eventually get you to where you should be heading. Leave out no questions. So it's not trying. The first thing any good Bible teacher will do is put all the questions on the board. And he will pound you with questions. I had that done to me when I was at uh, Hawaii. Mike Hayes never answered anything for me, Dr. Hayes. All he did was ask me questions, one question after another. And I used to tell him, you have no answers. And he would cackle and run off asking me more questions. 
That's what I want you to do, too. That's what I'm trying to do as well, because Dr. Hayes was absolutely correct. That is the way you approach the Bible. Leave out no questions. Now, you've got to ask. <laughs> I have your baby cries. You know why? Because somebody directly behind your baby is acting like a, a goof. And it isn't Charlotte. Yeah, we have, we have a problem back there. We, we have someone less mature than your child right behind you. <laughs> so put her, put her on the other shoulder, maybe, because she's clearly being frightened. <laughs> okay. Ask and try to answer all questions and then ask yourself, have I answered, have I asked the right question? It's a famous story in a good book uh, by Dr. Uh, Edgar Andrews called Who Made God? He's a witness at a, at a trial, and somebody, the attorney, asks him a question. And he looks at the attorney and he says, you didn't ask me the right question. And that's profound. And the judge said, well, answer this man's wrong question and then answer the right question. And that's exactly what you should do. You should be constantly saying, am I asking? And that's what I do every Sunday. Did I ask this congregation the right question? What I mean by that is find the question that should be asked, the right question, the question that launches you into the big room where all the other what waits for you? All the other questions wait. So where is the question that, that opens the door to all these other questions? So there's a key question that we want to find. Perhaps there's two or three of them, but seldom more than that. And I call them linchpin questions. And last Sunday we made progress. I submit that we ask the question that unlocks, that launches you out, launches you uh, into the next room of John 13. And therefore we can expect to find that room full of all kinds of treasures. But i got to back up the bus a little bit to collect people who missed the special sermons. First, we diagram John 12. It's on the other side. Well, let me spin it around so you can see that. That's where we were. That was the special Super Bowl sermon. There it is, John 12. 1 through 11. Oh, down goes Frazier. Okay. John 12. And notice that it was bracketed within Lazaruses or Lazari. <laughs> Okay, I have Lazaruses and Lazaruses. And so what's in between is bracketed by or is booked in by or it is a Lazarus or a Lazari sandwich. And so understand that the resurrection of Lazarus and the witness of Lazarus is what's going on inside of John 12. So you've got to start there. This meal at Simon the leper's house has the resurrection and subsequent testimony of Lazarus as its context, as its central focus. And so that, of course, sends you into the sign of Jonah, uh, maybe. But understand, the resurrection testimony pattern that is there is a certainty. So we now know that John 12 is, is underneath it is the resurrection and the testimony of Lazarus. And within this resurrection and witness of Lazarus is the first recorded words of who? First recorded words of Judas. It's the first time in Scripture that he speaks, and we know about it. So inside the resurrection, what causes him to speak? You see, you're investigating a crime scene. 
if you will. Not quite, but put yourself. I have a Lazarus context. Lazarus was dead. He's been resurrected. He's at a meal. He's sitting at the table. He's at Simon the leper's house. Mary is washing Christ's feet. Martha is serving. And Judas says, this is the time and the place for me to say something. And John records it. So, obvious question. Why? What has the context of Lazarus being resurrected and what's he saying to the Jews? Because all the Jews are coming to talk to this guy. And why are they coming to talk to this guy? Because he can tell them about what it's like to die, where you go, who you see, what it's like to come back, what it's like to be resurrected. So he has lots of information. Now, I know it's hard to listen to me, but if I could bring somebody up here and standing here that was dead and you knew he was dead and he went and he has come back and he's alive, you would have questions for him and this place would be filled. There'd be no buffet. So that's why they're there. It's the first recorded words of Judas, words that result. What happens when he says them? Something really unique happens. He, he attacks the anointing of Christ by Mary. That's what he does. He's looking at the resurrection and the witness of Lazarus in that context, and he attacks the anointing of Christ by Mary with that oil. Why does he do it? See, he's the what? He's the criminal mind. And he is about to commit a criminal act. He's a criminal mind that you cannot. I did enjoy, I have to admit, I did enjoy um, uh, the movie, what um, Sherlock Holmes movie. And what do I do with Sherlock Holmes movies? I watch them for what? I want to see all the little clues and evidences as they give them to me. And they're really obvious because they're so out of place. And they make sure that they... They emphasize them so that later on you'll remember them when they show you all of them. So I also know that Moriarty has to be there. Because Moriarty is this criminal mastermind, supposedly in the mind of Conan Doyle, far more intelligent than his hero, Sherlock Holmes. And yet, Sherlock Holmes is this incredible intellect. So, if you wish to think of it that way, I have this amazing criminal mind sitting there, doing something, manipulating things. And what happens when he talks? Well, as soon as he does, his words result in the entire apostles sitting at the table to do what? To follow him. They all follow him. He is clearly the, leaders, uh, the leader of the apostles at this particular place for certain. And all of them, at the leadership of Judas, all of them begin to question who? They begin to question Christ. How do they question Christ? Judas asks the question, why are we wasting this oil? We should give it to the poor. We should sell it for a hundred thousand and give it to the poor in today's money. And every single apostle does what? Agrees with him. And they all say what, essentially? We're wasting this oil on who? Christ. And he's doing what? He's allowing the oil to be wasted. He's not giving it to the poor. How's he coming across? To the, they're attacking him. They're saying he's what? He's wrong. He's making a mistake. He's doing something that's what? 
It's wasteful. It's selfish. It's uncaring. They, Judas, this little subtle question, begins to question the character of Christ. He questions his goodness. He says that Christ doesn't care for the poor. He should sell it. He's wasting it on himself. That's selfishness. It's an option that Christ hasn't considered giving it to the poor, which means what? means that he's not omniscient. He hasn't thought of every option. So it should come to no surprise, it come to you as no surprise, that Judas's first recorded words would attack the character of Christ, his goodness and his omniscience. That is what? I would expect that out of Judas, because what? Attacking the goodness of God and the, the character of God and the caring of God... The selfishness of God is exactly who? That is the lie of Satan. It is the accusation of Satan. It is what he accused God of as he went from angel to angel and spread his lie that there was no solution to sin. See, Judas's words prevailed, by the way, until Christ brought up what? Burial. His death. Satan declares that God is the author of evil. Ooh, that's flat out a satanic premise. God is the author of evil. Anyone comes up to you and says, God is the author of evil, and they will, you will know immediately that is from Satan himself. And they have been misled. Satan declares that God is the author of evil. There is no free will, no intentionality or purpose, therefore no accountability. It all goes in a row really fast. If there is no free will, there's no accountability. Bang, bang. That, by the way, is exactly Aldous Huxley. Who's Aldous Huxley? He is the philosopher of what, of what movement? Atheism. Which specific atheism? Evolutionary atheism. There is no purpose to the universe. And if there is no purpose, it's all chaos, it's all happenstance, it's all coincident. There's multi-universes, and this one universe happens to be uh, one that formed out of nothing, and there is no purpose to it, there is no intentionality. We do not have free will. Free will is absurd. That is exactly what the atheist evolutionist will say. Why? Because he wants no accountability. For what? Aldous Huxley, Huxley was a deviant. Now, you can figure out which kind of deviant on your own, but see me later if you want specific. But you start guessing. Be an investigator. Great philosopher of the atheistic movement. It's always the same thing. When you destroy intentionality and you destroy free will, you raise up the specter of no accountability. That is exactly satanic. And Satan says that God is the author of evil, and therefore you can't, he cannot judge if he is the author. And he also says that God cannot solve free will and sin with justice, and therefore God is not omniscient and he is not good. And if there is no solution to sin that is just, Obviously, God is neither good nor omniscient. And there's where you go. This, as you know, is the theme of where, what passage in Scripture. Come on, you can do this. I just repeated a sermon I did. What? What sermon did I do? 
Somebody say Matthew 4 to make me happy. Yes, Matthew 4. It's the testing of Christ. This is the lie of Satan. By the way, the lie is also a term used for the Antichrist. So now, why did I bring it up? Because John 12, yeah, this, John 12 must connect to Matthew 4. Because Judas's words are exactly what Satan accuses Christ of in Matthew 4, or that Christ solves in Matthew 4. So Judas brings it up here, so I must connect back to Matthew 4. And Matthew 4 does connect to John 12. How does it do it? John 13. you got to admit, that is a cool thing. Yes. Okay. That's an interesting question. If you think so, Judas doesn't really care if the apostles anoint him. He wants to be anointed as the Messiah, but he'd want the Pharisees to do it. I think I can make that case when I get to John 11, the sheepfold. So bear with me a little bit. Expect John 12 to connect to Matthew 4, and it does through John 13. Okay? In case you were wondering about that. Because what's going on in John? We did John 13 last week. I don't have time to read all of it today. What is John 12 about? Lazarus has been resurrected, and he's got a witness, and he's doing what? When Judas makes his move, when Judas says what he says... What are we doing? We're at a meal. Okay? It's a banquet. It's a banquet meal. John 13, Judas is... Satan enters Judas in John 13. We're asking, is it I? Who is it? Christ gives him a piece of bread, the first piece of bread, if you were here last week. It's very important. What's going on in John 13? Another meal. This one's the Passover meal. I have banquet meals, back-to-back banquet meals. Do you think that's coincidence? It isn't a coincidence. Who wrote the Gospel of John? Say God did. Through who? Apostle John. And he put these things back-to-back meals with Judas right in the middle of both of them. Do you think that is an accident? It is not an accident. They connect together. He's trying to give you information. See, because once you realize that these are back-to-back banquet meals, that's an explosion. Now, now you've found a linchpin. You've got a good question. Why is he doing this? Why did John, why did the Holy Spirit direct John to do that? Remember, what's the whole point of the Gospel of John? What's he trying to prove? What is John? You just take John as an author, that big first, second, and third John, Revelation, and the Gospel of John. That's all you care about right now. What's he trying to prove in every one of those books that he wrote? He's got one purpose. What is it? Christ is God. He's just, just stomping his feet to get you to know that and to keep it and to hold on to it. That is a, that's why all you hear me do is this. The deity of Christ, that's what John is doing. 
He wants to prove the goodness of Christ and the deity of Christ, and they're there together. Uh, there was a comment by a singer this week. <clears throat> I don't know if you call him a singer anymore, but he's a pretty good piano player. Elton John. And it's essentially the, what, what we call the Mary Magdalene comment, or the Mary Magdalene heresy. It's very common heresy that is out there. What did he say? Who heard Elton John pontificate on the person of Christ? Anybody? Wow. Really? Bummer. Do you know what the Mary Magdalene heresy is? Yeah, that Christ had a sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene. That's called the Mary Magdalene heresy. Uh, Elton John brought up the other heresy called the homosexual heresy. Okay. They're the same heresy, by the way, when you, when you tear into them and find out what they say. If Christ, let me just help you with it. Let me, oh my goodness, I shouldn't do that. Mary Magdalene heresy, the homosexual heresy. Um, okay, and Genesis 6, cosmologically mixed, all of those fit together. Does that make sense to you? Does it? All of them are linked together. All of them say one thing. Mary Magdalene and the Genesis 6 cosmologically mixed heresy. Do you see why Mary Magdalene and cosmologically mixed Genesis 6 would come up? Does that make any sense to anybody? What is Genesis 6 about? Yes, I have the sons of God coming down to the daughters of men. Who are the sons of God? That's the angelic host, if you have the literal view, what's called the, called the cosmologically mixed view. Who's Mary Magdalene? A human being, she's the daughter of men, right? Who's Christ? God. If Christ has a relationship with Mary Magdalene that's physical, what's he got to do next? Flood the earth. That's why they link together. Does that make sense to you? I'm just kind of throwing that out. I don't really have time to deal with it. But the homosexual, Mary Magdalene, cosmologically mixed issue, all linked together, all say that Christ is not God, that Christ is sinful, that he is an adulterer, he is committing adultery, and adultery is called what by, by God? Abomination. And so homosexuality is called an adultery. God could not, Christ could not commit adultery. If he does, then what's the next problem we have? He's not God, he's got sin inside of him, and then what's our status? Doomed. There's no salvation. See, that's why you always see those. You have to be prepared for. I'm sorry to go off on that. John, the Holy Spirit through John, has one goal. Jesus Christ is creator God in the flesh, dwelling in the middle, in the midst. He's in the middle of hopeless, dying, despairing, wretched, blind, naked humanity, right? And perhaps when I say hopeless, dying, despairing, wretched, blind, naked humanity, you say back to me, wow, that sounds just like where? Revelation 3.17 is correct because that is the description of the last church or the church age that I believe we're living in. And it's also a description of the two thieves crucified with Christ. Let me go back over that. Uh, hopeless, dying, despairing, wretched, blind, naked humanity, two thieves. And in the middle of the two thieves, in the midst of the two thieves is who? 
Christ. And the two thieves are hopeless, dying, despairing, wretched, blind, naked. And you'll say to me, wait a minute, two thieves weren't blind. Well, they weren't. They're going to be really fast. Who going to blind the two thieves? Who are nailed off the crosses, can't move. Who going to blind them? Birds are. Birds are going to sweep down and eat their eyes off of them. So they ain't blind, they're going to be blind. Now, when I say to you, wretched, hopeless, dying, naked, blind humanity... Two blind thieves, Christ in the mist. By the way, why are they called thieves? You ever wonder that? Because were they thieves? Evidence is, is they were Israeli resistance. They were attempting to kill and plot against the Roman occupation. What's the obvious question? Who the leader? Of the Israeli resistance. And why does the Bible call them thieves when they were Israeli freedom fighters? Romans, of course, would call them what? Terrorists. Don't ever let me say to you that I think freedom fighting and terrorism are the same. It is not. But why would I call Israeli resistance thieves? The Bible does that. Did the Bible make a mistake? No. So there must be a reason God's doing that, huh? God identifies them as a thief. By the way, if I say the Israeli resistance uh, were two thieves, um, who else is called a thief as part of the discussion today? Judas is called a thief. Now, you would assume that he is called a thief. Why? Because he's stealing money out of the money box. That's what you think. How come you think that? But is that why he's called a thief? It isn't. What's he stealing? Does he need money? God calls him a thief. Calls these two guys that Christ is in the midst of a thief. Why are they called a thief? I have a... uh, Here's John 10. Let's read John 10. This is the sheep hold. And yes, I did very professionally check the time. Okay. If you have a Bible, turn to John 10 and look at the heading. What does your heading say before we read John 10? Somebody read me their heading. I am the good shepherd. So immediately you now know what are we talking about. Zechariah 11. So what should we be looking for? If Christ is a good shepherd, who should we be looking for as well, who will always be there? Yeah, the evil shepherd, the Antichrist. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. So, a thief is somebody who climbs over the wall and gets into the sheepfold. What is a sheepfold? The sheepfold is a place to put the sheep. Okay, who puts the sheep there? All the shepherds do. When do they put them there? At night. Why do they put them there? Because of the 
wolves and the wild animals. They put them in the sheepfold. And the porter does what? He guards them there. The wall's ten foot high. Stops you from breaking in. The animals can't get in. He protects the sheep. So you bring your sheep. You turn them all over to him. He puts them in there. And they're all mixed up, by the way. How many herds of sheep are in there? could be a dozen or more. And the shepherd comes by the next day to get his sheep out, take them out to graze. How does he know which sheep are his? Yes, radio remote control systems. That's right. No. They follow his voice. That's how it works. doesn't matter where you put the sheep. The shepherd comes in and goes, hey, sheep, and they all go after him. Make the application, right? Who says they don't do application? But who tries to get into the sheepfold at night? The thieves do. What are they trying to do? Steal the sheep. Why are the two men, the Israeli resistance, called thieves by God? Because they're trying to steal sheep. How are they doing it? Why is Judas called a thief? Because he's trying to steal sheep. That's how it works. I could read a little more. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. By name. The sheep, the shepherd, knows your name. What's your name? You'd be wrong, by the way. Because why? You don't even know your name. Who knows your name? God does. How many names you got? Lots of names. Does he repeat any names? Nope. He's really good at naming stuff. So he starts out Adam naming things. How good is, was Adam at naming things? Did he make any repetitious names? No, he didn't. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before him, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee for, from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, this is my, one of my favorite verses. God does this a couple of times. He calls you stupid in the Bible. He does. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. They didn't understand who a thief was. Who's the thief in that story? He's the good shepherd. Who's the thief? We'll get to that next week, maybe. Anyway, I got two thieves trying to climb over the wall to get into the sheepfold. And they're equidistant from Christ. They're hopeless. They're dying. They're despairing. They're soon to be blind if they're not blind because birds are going to eat their eyes and they're naked and they're wretched and they're doomed. But yet they have Christ right in the middle. He's right in the middle. I'll tell you that he was exactly in the middle. They were equal from him in distance. One saved, one all saved. Not one not saved. Now, when I tell you about birds who come and eat the eyes of the people who were crucified next to Christ, the two men crucified next to Christ, and I tell you about birds who come and eat the eyes, what do you think of? Where else in Scripture do birds come and eat things? Matthew 13, they eat the seed, right? And then what do those birds do? They nest in the mutation that is the mustard tree. So, put it all together now. 
Laodicea, Revelation 3.17, blind, despairing, naked, wretched, right to thieves, birds that blind them. Have fun with that. Put it all together, and you now at least know who the birds are, right? I'll be moving along. Where was I? Yes. Two meals. I got a meal. John 12, I got a meal, and John 13. Both meals have Judas prominently discussed. In fact, I'm going to argue that outside of Christ, the purpose of the discussion of the two meals, the reason John put them in the Gospel of John, was to teach you about Judas. Judas is the most significant piece in both meals outside of Christ. And I'm further going to argue that these two back-to-back meals are mostly... I'm sorry, are, are about the mystery of number eight. So I'm going to call them mystery number eight meals. They are revelatory. They are teaching us about Judas, about the Antichrist, about the man of sin. That's their intention. That's why they're there. They are intended, included by John, to demonstrate that Christ is omniscient, he is omnipotent, and that he is filled to the brim and he is pure love and goodness. But they also reveal the totality of the person that is Judas. See, I'm going to say this to you. That's why I try to get people to read certain books. I really do want you to recognize when you are confronted by an evil person, you won't recognize them most of the time. You don't notice them. You don't see them. You don't. They move in and out. They're called they're pathological people. And they lie even when it does is no value. There's nothing to be gained by it. Why do they lie when there's nothing to be gained by their lie? As a teacher, I'd run into this all. How many pathological people are there in the country today of 300 million? You're pushing close to three or four million of them. Chances are you have met one and they're incredibly evil. And you don't notice it. Because why? There's a great deal of intellect generally there. They like certain fields. Number one field that they like to go into? Politics. And they're usually very successful because they don't mind. They will just lie and lie and lie. You ask them what time it is, they'll tell you a time that isn't even close. What time is it? Two o'clock? Well, wait a minute. It says 5.05. Oh, no, it doesn't. It says 4.05. That clock's wrong. I was here earlier today, and I was working on that clock because I couldn't get it to work. Clock's wrong. Oh, really? Yeah. Why do they do that? They want to see something. What are they trying to find out? They're trying to find out how smart you are. How easily are you to fool? So understanding and recognizing evil is very, very important for Christians. Because where to, where's the number two thing after politics? What's the number two that they like to do? No, I, actually, I'm not going to say lawyer, but I should have thought of it. No, they like to be pastors. They really do. Religious people. And so... As Troy keeps saying the same thing, control, power, control, power. It's absolutely true. Where do you get the most control? Politics. Where do you get the second most control? Churches. So be, you have to be somebody that recognizes evil. You have to know it when you see it. Um, By the way, Judas had a characteristic that um, 
that's really remarkable. He could never and never did call Christ what? God. Called him master, called him teacher, called him rabbi, called him whatever he wanted to. Friend, couldn't call him God. Couldn't or wouldn't. See, that's a Holy Spirit issue. Anyway, these meals are relevatory about evil, about the totality of the person that is Judas. Start looking for the evil that is here. See, some of you have been taught that Judas was I mean, just a little misguided. He was kind of a petty thief. And, he, and when he made a mistake and oh, he felt all this remorse, oh my goodness. That just simply doesn't fit the evidence. What you have is an incredibly evil criminal mind. Find it. Understand that. Don't be fooled. That's why John says in Revelation, wisdom 666 is recognizing this. Knowing how to see it and figure it out. Christ is the Lord God Almighty. Never say otherwise. Have no position otherwise. Always read your Bible knowing that Christ, Jesus Christ, is the Lord God creator. But Judas is also, in this sense, he is unique and alone. There is no created human being like Judas. Never has been one. Know that. These are the two things that the Apostle John, bam, 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 hammers on the deity of Christ and the fact that of no other person is it said of except for Judas. What I mean by that, no other person has Satan into him, enter into him. No other person does Christ say, you are the devil. No other person has his own place when he dies. No other person is called the son of perdition except Judas. He has his list of of no others. He is the leader of the apostles. They follow him whenever he makes means of it. And last week I so subtly alluded to the position that Judas had at these meals, at both meals. Some of you thought that I had mixed up John 12 and John 13 um, because I said... That Lazarus was not the uh, person of honor, nor was Simeon, and that neither was Peter and neither was John or any other disciple. And I blended both meals together because both meals do blend together, in my view. Judas, at both banquets, is in the seat of honor. I think that is obvious. And if that's true, and that's a pretty important piece of information, how is it that Judas would be at the seat of honor in both meals? What's the next obvious question? If I'm right about that, and why do we ask that? But let's say, if I'm right about that, why would Judas be in the place of honor in both meals? And then what's the next obvious question? Is he in the place of honor in all meals? And if he is in the place of honor in every meal, why is he in the place of honor? Because it is the place of, of not just honor, it's the place where it is announcing that he is a great friend and he is greatly loved. I have Judas sitting in this place, receiving the dipped morsel 
in both banquet meals. In fact, I will say in every banquet meal, when Christ is the host of the table, Judas is sitting here and Judas always gets the first piece of bread, the bread that says he is the great friend. He is certainly loved. You see, it's not Lazarus. It's not Simon the leopard. It's not the apostle John. It's not Peter. It's not the certain man that they had to find. It's no other disciple or apostle, but each time it is Judas, especially in these two meals. And if I'm correct, then, like I said, why would Christ do this? Who has to do it? Who has to put him there? Christ does. He's the host. Clearly, he did it at the Passover meal. Why would Christ do this? Why would he want this? Because it is his choice to do it. It is clearly something he is teaching you. Here you have, you have to answer that. Does he know it? This is silly. This is a foolish question. I have to answer, ask it. Not for you. It is for the people who are far off listening by CD who are nowhere near as smart as you. <laughs> Does Jesus Christ know that Judas isn't saved? Duh. He says so. John thirteen eleven. You are not all clean. When God says you're not clean, what's that mean? You're unsaved. He's talking about Judas there. Obviously, that's Judas. He calls Judas the devil, Diablos. He calls him Satan. You are the Satan, John 6, 70. He calls him, 17, 12 of John, Judas the son of perdition. So notice that, 13, 11, 6, 7, 17, 12, Revelation 17, 8, Revelation 13, 1 through 7, Revelation 13, 18, John 13, 27 through 30, John 13, 2. What's he doing over and over and over again? That is the devil. Him. Right there. Anybody get it? John is relentless trying to tell you who Judas is. Relentless. Two things. Two things the book of John does. Relentlessly. Tell you who Christ is. Tell you who Judas is. I think John deeply regrets his question of John 13.25. John asks that. Who is it? Peter wanted to know. Remember? You were here last week. Peter wanted to know. Christ said, hey, somebody's going to deliver me to the Pharisees. Peter goes, John, ask him who it is. Because where's Peter? Too far away. But he wanted to know. Why did Peter want to know? Peter always carries a handgun. That's right. Peter carries concealed. And he's going to take the guy out. And as soon as John comes back, hey, it's that guy. That's the end of Peter, that's the end of whoever it was. Could Peter have taken out Judas? No. Who's about to go inside Judas? Satan is. And I know, listen, I'll make the case that John deeply regretted his question here because he should have known who it was. 
John should have known. John should not have needed to ask, Lord, who is it? I'll make the case that Judas always routinely got the first piece of bread. Notice what I'm saying. Always. Every banquet meal, Judas was in the place of great friendship, was in the place of great love, and got the first piece of bread. And I know many disagree. They're going to argue that the first piece of bread, the place of honor that Christ put there because Christ is omniscient God and he would know, wouldn't he? They will argue that that is an inconsequential, meaningless detail. It's arbitrary and it was rotated and it is useless to uh, assign anything of, of meaning to it. But you can't sway me. I go where the evidence leads. First, John puts these back to back, side by side, these two meals, Judas in the middle of both of them. Second, Satan waits until when? Satan waits until when? Before he enters Judas. Until that first piece of bread is given to him. That's bang. That's the signal for Judas and Satan. How did they know? First question. How did they arrive? It had to have happened before, I will submit to you. Satan waits until the sop is given, and then the union of Satan and Judas occurs. Third, the sop, the first piece of bread, is not seen by anyone else at the table. No one else at the table knew. Let me read that to you. Let's go there really fast, because we've got to hustle now. John 13. Okay, we'll go to 26. Uh, find it. Jesus answered, it is he whom... Is, uh, here's John's great question. And leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Because Peter said, go find out, so I'm killing. So John says, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give the piece of bread when I have dipped it. The first piece of bread, the bread of great honor. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot of Simon. Now after the piece of bread... Satan enters. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, and Jesus needed to say to him, buy those things we need for the feast. Does Jesus, Jesus need to buy anything? Or that he would give, should give something to the poor? That's the sign. The sign is that first piece of bread. I submit to you that's because it's always been done this way. And no one at the table suspected a thing. Everything is going just like it has always gone. Judas is in his place. He gets the first piece of bread. He is this apostle that is the leader here. Nothing about the first piece of bread given to Judas, seated at the place of honor, the place of great love, the place of great friendship. Nothing about what you do, do quickly, that wasn't noticed by anyone. No one noticed it. And what could explain that? I mean, how much plain... Look, you're sitting at the table, you ask, who is it? And I say, hey, the one I give this piece of bread to, that's the guy. And no one noticed it. John. He should have yelled out at Peter, hey, Peter, it's that guy. How come he didn't? How come he didn't notice? What could explain it? Obviously, a hypothesis that proposes that this was standard behavior would explain that. Jesus Christ, creator God, perfect, pure goodness and love and mercy, 
Therefore, perfect holiness and justice, perfectly holy, perfectly just, he chooses, he chose, he chose, he chose, he chose Judas. John 6.70 When he chose Judas, this is what he says. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is the devil? Jesus Christ, omniscient God, chose Judas. Why? Why did he choose Judas? Because why? What characteristic does Judas have that Christ chose him? He says so, 670. I chose one of you because you are the devil. That's why he chases Judas. Why does he want this? Christ always knows all things. John hammers 21, 17, 19, 28, 18, 4, over and over again, all through John. Christ knows all things. He knows that Judas is the devil. He knows Judas is the man of sin. He knows Satan is going to enter him. He puts him in the seat of honor and he gives him the first piece of bread. Is it sarcasm? No. Why does he do it? Because it's true. It's true. Does he love Judas? Is Judas and he, do they have friendship? Does he honor Judas? See, if you're, if you're saying it's a trick, that he's doing it as a trick, that he, that he doesn't like Judas, he just wants to keep his enemies close, then what are you saying about the character of God? That he's what? He's misleading everybody. Can't be the case, can it? So, the interaction between Christ and Judas is unknown by the disciples. They don't get it. And they don't understand it. Just as Satan was, by the way, let me give you this, just for fun. Satan, in Ezekiel 28, is who? Who is he? He is the anointed what? The anointed cherubim. Who anoints Judas? This gets to what Bill brought up. Who anoints Judas? I'm sorry. said that badly, didn't I? Whoa, more soda. I'm confusing myself. Though not really. You'll figure out not really pretty soon. Just as Satan was the anointed cherubim in Ezekiel 28, God anointed Satan, made him what? He is the leader. He is the authority over who? All. He's the number one created being, isn't he? Just as God anointed the cherubim Satan, the highest authority of the angelic host, I submit to you that Judas was what? He was the highest apostle. Who put him there? God did. Who sat in, who got, did Satan have a place of honor? Yes, he did. Who put him there? God did. Did God know that when he put Satan into the place of honor and anointed him the highest cherubim of all the angelic host, did he know that Satan was the devil? Have no position otherwise. God knows all things. It's critical, critical that you never think otherwise. 
I submit again that Judas was the anointed apostle who sat at the place of honor, who always got the first piece of bread, and everyone else followed and submitted to Judas because Judas was in authority. He had control. He had what? He had a money box. We'll get into what that means later, not today. Judas's first recorded words are exactly the same as the lie of Satan. I would expect that. Do you see the pattern repeating? It is the same pattern. Judas says God is not good and God is not omniscient. The same pattern, the pattern, the same. I'd expect nothing less. Okay. Two key linchpin questions. Why did Judas Satan wait until the piece of bread? Why did they comply with what you do, do quickly? Does that ever bother anybody? Why? God is saying to Judas, hurry up. What should Judas do? You'd think he'd slow down. You'll have teenage girls. Teenage boys, you tell them to hurry up, they stop. So what you do to a teenage boy is you say, hey, pick it up. No. Put it, make a mess. Try it. You've got just as good a chance it'll work as the other way. <laughs> Slow down, stop. They might go into a dead sprint. You never know. Why did Judas and Satan... Hurry up, because they did. As soon as he said, whatever you do, do quickly, they speed up. What's the obvious question? What is it that they were doing? He wanted them to do it quick. What is it that they were going to do? What is it that Judas and Satan want to do above all things? What do they want? See, they like dead people. The more dead people, the happier they are. Why the immediacy? Why the hurry? These, by the way, are very fearful words coming from God. Do quickly. The literal meaning is really more quickly. It's a very aggressive command. Move fast. Whatever you do, move fast. And it has its parallel to Matthew 4. I would expect that it would. Remember, I said that it would, and it does. What's the same about Matthew 4? I'll read it for you. Where Satan is telling Christ that there is no solution to sin and that God is not good. And Christ explains it all to him and then says this. Then Jesus said to Satan, move quickly. Some Bibles will say depart. Some will say depart quickly. Mine says away with you, Satan. So here it's the same command. God loudly at the close of the debate between God in the flesh and Satan the accuser, God loudly says depart away with you. Move quickly. It's a command. Also in John 13:27, after the first piece of bread, after Satan enters into Judas, the same command essentially is given, depart now. And immediately, it says in John, immediately Satan and Judas go into where? Immediately they go where? Read it. It says darkness. 
Depart now, bam, into darkness. Away with you, into darkness. Move into darkness. John witnessed, and by the way, it's going to happen again, Revelation 19.20, Revelation 21.10. He sends them into darkness. John witnessed and remembered the darkness into which Judas and Satan went, and he surely meant for us to realize that that darkness was more than physical. And now you have the solution to the Pharaoh. That's how it all fits back together. God ratifies human decisions. Here come the musicians. God ratifies human decisions. What do I mean by that? How does that fit with the Pharaoh? When a man accepts Christ, what I mean by that is when a man believes in the name of Jesus Christ, God forever ratifies it. What's that mean? Once you believe, once you are saved, God forever ratifies it. But the inverse or the converse is also the case. Two created beings, honored by God, chosen by God, depart into darkness. God ratified their decision. Okay. Did you, I asked you last week, to answer all those questions. How'd you do? I'm going to ask you this week. Why did Satan and Judas... Wait for that peace. Why was that the signal? By the way, why did they depart quickly when he said, depart quickly? <laughs> you got no choice. God issues a command, you go. Satan found that out in Matthew 4. And so, see, there's no possibility that Judas and Satan do not know who that is now. Twice he is able to blow Satan out. Satan understands that. So does Judas. Figure out why they use that as a signal. And we'll take another. Let's see. I have a little thing I said here. All I said is see you next week. We'll take a run at that next week. You should be able to figure it out. You should have been able to figure this out. If you're not figuring it out, come and see me and talk to me. It's very important that I get you up to speed quickly. Because it's starting to get tough. Why is it starting to get harder? i got sunlight, and this is the gifted program. Okay, let's rise and be dismissed. It is well, page 62.